Hey there, and welcome to the Modus Podcast, First Time Homebuyers Edition. I'm your host, Nate Caldwell with Modus Real Estate. If you are in the beginning stages of buying a home and don't know where to start, stay tuned as we chat about the ins and outs of real estate transactions. Here is your chance to get first-hand advice from the pros in the Denver housing market. Hello, everybody. This is Skylar Moore with Modus Real Estate and Plain Broker, and we have a special guest today, Mr. Stephen Gilman. He's an attorney, good friend of ours, and... We're going to discuss today the spirit of the Colorado real estate contract. Stephen, I'm sure you have your attorney disclosures here you want to go through before we get started, but uh, appreciate you coming on today and having us uh, learn a little bit more about the spirit of the Colorado real estate contract. Well, hey, Skylar. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Like you said, I'm an attorney with Atlas Law, and I'm here to talk a little bit about the Colorado real estate form commission contract to buy and sell real estate for... um, the buyer's perspective uh, when it comes to purchasing property here in Colorado. Okay. Do you have any disclosures you want to give us before we go, or are you good to get oh, started well, again? Well, as always, um, this it, what I'm we're going to talk about here does not constitute legal advice, but it's uh, things for buyers and parties um, to a contract to buy and sell real estate, things to think about. And if you ever have any questions about a specific contract, I advise you to talk to your broker and also to seek outside legal counsel if you have any questions or concerns. Cool. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, get this thing started. So it's obviously intimidating, right? We have an 18-page contract. You get, uh, you're excited. You find a house that you want to buy and boom, you get a contract from your broker. Wow. This is a lot of information, right? I mean, it takes brokers years to be able to go through and understand this contract well. So appreciate going through that with us. So let's start uh, with number section two of parties and property, um, because this is kind of how people are taking title or how they're going to have ownership, right, of this property. And there are uh, a few different options. So I'll kind of let you walk us through that. And sure. What those mean. Um, so there are essentially three different ways to take title to a property as a buyer. There's joint tenants, tenants in common, and in severalty. Joint tenants means, and this is typically the item selected if you're married, um, it's multiple buyers, and if one of those buyers was to die, uh, that portion of the property would go to the surviving co-owners. Whereas a tenants in common is, once again, multiple buyers, but if if one of the buyers was to die, then their portion of the property would go to their estate or to their heirs. Uh, The other option is in severalty, and that just applies to individual owners who own 100% of the property. Yeah, no, that's great. That actually comes up quite a bit of, hey, you know, what does this mean? Which one do you advise? Um, So that's great. Um, Another one we've got here is 2.5.4, which is other inclusions. And then related with that is exclusions. And I know this is one um, that has come up for you quite a bit. um, And you've got appliances highlighted here. So kind of just kind of walk us through what, what that really means as far as inclusions and exclusions. Sure. Basically, everything that comes with a property that isn't attached is considered to be another inclusion. So that includes all of your appliances, your washer and dryer, stove, refrigerator, um, all of those items. And so if you want those included with the sale of a property, then you need to list them out individually under Section 2.5.4. Section 2.6 lists exclusions, and oftentimes sellers will state explicitly in like the MLS or a, a listing of a property things that they will not include with the property, which could also include the appliances or, say, pool tables or hot tubs, um, any kind of heavy things that are 
located on the property but aren't necessarily affixed to the property. And how, as far as a buyer goes, how specific do you think it needs to be? Can you just say, you know, kitchen refrigerator, or do you have to actually get into, like, you know, general electric refrigerator in the kitchen? Uh, I don't think you need to get that specific, but as specific as possible. You know, if you list every single appliance located in the kitchen, or if there's, say, an extra refrigerator outside in the garage, list that too. Right. Um, Just try and itemize the list of things that you want that are located in the property at the time you write the contract. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, We'll kind of skip over 2.7. That obviously is kind of really important for mountain properties or say in Evergreen where people have wells. A lot of our buyers are obviously in kind of the metro area where they have public water, whether it's Denver water, um, et cetera. So that's kind of more of a specific, I'd say, right, if you come up to this, like you were saying, you know, refer to your broker or the the attorney about that, because those are obviously more specific items. Yeah, you know, we live in the West, and I think water is becoming more and more scarce, kind of no matter where we're located in Colorado. So it's important to know where your water's coming from. So have that conversation with your broker and ask. But as you were saying, metro area property is probably just a public water supply, but it never hurts to ask and to double check. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Cool. With that, we'll go to number three, which is dates, deadlines, and applicability. So this is kind of like they say the devil's in the details, right? I mean, obviously that goes throughout the whole contract, but uh, as the employing broker of a brokerage, I can definitely say a lot, I'd say majority of the disputes come up over this part of the contract, right? Um, So I'll kind of let you kind of go through the highlights of that and uh, what you have to to bring us light on that. Sure. I think the most important piece of this is to talk to your broker. When they send you a proposed offer, they're going to have all of these dates and deadlines filled in and really kind of get into the minutiae here and ask your broker what each of these dates and deadlines means because all of these dates and deadlines come with responsibilities and rights. And really, when it comes to um, the buyer's perspective, the preservation of the buyer's earnest money is the most important thing. And so as long as you abide by these dates and deadlines, chances are if you need to terminate the contract, you're going to be able to get your earnest money refunded to you. Uh, If you don't abide by these dates and deadlines, that's where we see problems. And that's where there could be a conflict, a breach of the contract, and where you may actually risk losing your earnest money. Right. So I think, let's give a good example, right? Let's say it's an inspection. So... If a broker puts, let's say, a, you know, because it's a really competitive market that we're in, a five-day inspection, right, and you haven't called ahead and, and, you know, hey, is this a realistic timeline with, you know, XYZ inspection company, they say, no, we're a minimum of 10 days out. And the uh, seller, for whatever reason, doesn't want to grant uh, an extension on that deadline. That's kind of, you know, a problem, right? That's That's kind of what we see as far as a brokerage side goes. So I think it's just really making sure that you understand the timeline. It's a realistic timeline that you can get, as you're saying, your contractual obligation done in that time period. Yeah, absolutely. I think that having an understanding of um, a buyer's reliance on third parties as it relates to these dates and deadlines is really important before you sign a contract. So talk to your lender when it comes to Uh, loan financing. Talk to your lender when it comes to appraisal turn times um, and for inspection turn times as well. And kind of understand those dates and deadlines before you write out the offer and then draft them accordingly. If you, for whatever reason, say with your inspection objection example, if you say, if the contract states you have to have your inspection completed 
and your inspection objection issued five days after contracting, and you know that that's not going to work, then you need to get an amend extend draft as soon as possible to extend that deadline in order to preserve your earnest money. And that's a great question, because I was actually going to ask you that next. We won't get too far into the weeds here, but does a seller have to actually grant an amend extend request, or do they have the ability to say, sorry, Charlie, we're not doing this, and get it done when you said you're going to, or we're, we're done here. Uh, yeah, the seller doesn't have to grant any extension requests. So we try and we advise our brokers and our buyers to get these dates and deadlines right the first time so that we don't have to ask for these extensions later on. Yeah, no, that's a great point because obviously that's kind of a question that we get is, hey, you know, if we ask, do they have to, to grant that? So I think that's, that's huge to know. Um, with that, we'll move on to section four, which is purchase price and terms. Um, this obviously is a big one, right? This is how much you're going to offer for the property and what kind of loan you're going to be giving and how much uh, um, money you're bringing to the table for your down payment. Um, so kind of what are some things here that uh, buyers should, should be looking out for? Well, so purchase price and earnest money amounts are key. You want to make sure that those amounts are obviously accurate because they're going to hold you to that. But the other pieces that are also important are the new loan amount and the cash to closing amount. And I see a lot of buyers get hung up on the new loan amount. It doesn't have to be a precise number, but it needs to be what you're expecting. If you're expecting to put down 20% on a property and have an 80% loan-to-value loan amount, then that number, you can play with that number a little bit. But make sure it's reasonable and it's in the, in the ballpark of the loan that you're going to be taking out. Okay. Uh, section 4.2, we've got seller concession. Um, and this one obviously is, you know, kind of what you're asking, the buyer is asking from the seller, correct? Uh, correct. This covers, hopefully, your buy, a buyer's closing costs or a portion thereof. So right now we're kind of in a seller's market, and so you don't see a lot of seller concessions. Um, but ordinarily, if a buyer doesn't have a lot of cash to bring to the table, they can ask for a $2,500 seller concession, and uh, the seller could grant that, and then those the seller would cover that co- that portion of the closing costs. Okay. Is there a kind of you – know, I, I know there's no set limit. Is there any kind of – You can ask uh, for whatever you want. Whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> good to know. Uh, 4.3, earnest money. This is obviously always a good one. There's uh, a lot of, I think, misconceptions about earnest money. So kind of hit on this one for us. Yeah. So typically speaking, say you write an offer and the earnest money required by the seller is $10,000. So it's your obligation that you guys go under contract. It's your obligation to deposit that $10,000 with the earnest money holder, which is typically the title company who oversees the transaction. And the buyer needs to deposit that earnest money uh, in the form that it dictates in Section 4.3, which could, is usually a check or a wire. Those funds need to be deposited with the earnest money holder by the earnest money delivery deadline. Um, a lot of times what we see is a buyer thinks that if they don't drop off earnest money by that earnest money deadline, that the contract automatically terminates and the buyers can walk and the parties can walk away. And that's not the case. That would be if a buyer failed to drop off earnest money by the adic- or by the deadline, they would be in breach of the contract. And then the seller would have all sorts of remedies that a buyer doesn't want to deal with. Right. No, that's great to know because uh, that's one that I deal with people a lot. It's a misconception of oh, well, if I, you know, don't deliver, then this contract's null and void. And right, and it is for not. People to know. Yep, yes. That's, that's great. And again, as Stephen said, a lot of this is, you know, per deal, right? And there's so many rabbit holes here we can go down. But again, we're just going over the general spirit of this contract. Um, moving on to Section 4.5, the new loan. 
Um, and this kind of ties in with 4.5.3 as well as far as loan limitations. Uh, so I'll let you go uh, on that one. Sure. It's just important for a buyer to uh, disclose if the buyer is going to use any loan proceeds to fund the transaction. And under Section 4.5.3 lists the loan limitations in the transaction. So some sellers don't like um, or won't accept FHA funding or VA lending. And in that case, um, the loan limitations becomes important because if you don't select that you're an FHA buyer and the seller comes to find out later that you are using an FHA loan, they can terminate the contract for a breach of contract. Okay. No, good to know. Um, now we're moving on to financing obligations under Section 5. Um, and this says, you know, everything to do kind of with communicating with your lender. Uh, yes. And so the the perk about this contract, the Colorado Real Estate Commission approved contract, is that it is typically very buyer friendly. And it affords buyer the right to terminate the contract under various reasons. But one of the, the broadest examples of that would be the new loan termination deadline. If a buyer doesn't like um, the terms of the loan or the cost of the loan, they're able to terminate the contract as long as they do so by the new loan termination deadline. So it's really important that a buyer understands their rights under this section, but then also abides by that loan termination deadline and stays in constant communication with the lender in order to um, determine whether or not the loan will be finalized by the new loan termination deadline or not. Uh, if the lender can't hit that date, if, if, say, a buyer isn't fully approved for a loan by this new loan termination deadline, it's really important that the buyer tries to uh, issue an amend extend and extend out that new loan termination deadline. Great. Um, and, Stephen, you know, one thing I've kind of noticed is, you know, amend extends, you know, nobody hopefully wants to do them. But it's kind of one of those things. Things do change in transactions, right? It's, it is kind of a living, breathing thing. Um, and definitely getting your... If you know you're going to have an issue, I think getting that amend extend out as soon as possible um, is kind of is kind of key. Do you have any yeah, insight I, on that? Absolutely. I think that the the beauty about the work that I do in transactional uh, real estate work is that you have a seller and a buyer who want to get a deal done, right? The seller's accepted your offer, and maybe as you said, terms have changed. Maybe you do need an extension on your on your loan termination deadline, and usually we see that sellers are amenable to those extensions because like I said earlier, they want to get this transaction done as well. Both parties are benefiting from the transaction. Right. Okay, cool. Um, with that being said, a big one here, appraisals, right? Um, as you said, we're kind of in a competitive market. Um, we're seeing some, I know you're not a fan of escalation clauses <laughs> and appraisal gaps and things like that. So if, uh, I know that there's a lot to kind of cover there, but I think it's just, this is a hot button, I think, with buyers because it is intimidating when, you may have, you know, 10 offers on a property and you're kind of going in, this is the one you want. You've seen 15 houses and you're going in guns a blazing with your offer. Um, just kind of understanding what this actually all means. Sure. And I think it's important to note that there are so many different uh, metrics of a good offer. It could be a really high purchase price or it could be an offer with minimal conditions and say removing the appraisal contingency provision. And it's important for a buyer to know what those provisions mean for them. Uh, ordinarily, you would have an appraisal deadline and appraisal objection rights. And so if um, you had this right and you ordered an appraisal and the property value came in lower than the purchase price, the appraisal objection gives you the right to terminate the transaction or renegotiate the deal 
based on the, re the lower or the appraised value. And if you're not able to come to terms on a renegotiated deal, then you can terminate the contract and then get your earnest money back and, and go find another property. So a lot of times what we're seeing now is sellers want the appraisal objection waived by a buyer. And if that is the case, if you if your broker has that conversation with you, it's really important to understand what that means and how that impacts your rights and to seek outside legal counsel if you're not totally comfortable with uh, waiving these objection rights. Yeah, no, that's huge because obviously if you waive that right, and let's just do like a, like a quick example. Let's say you're under contract for 500000 and your appraisal comes back at 475. If you've waived that right, um, you're basically saying, hey, I'm buying it for 500 regardless. Right, and that right. basically means that you're going to bring the additional $25,000 to the table, and that's assuming your lender is okay with that. Right. And a lot of times lenders want to see these appraisal objection rights maintained uh, because that's their collateral. So if you're talking about trying to waive your appraisal rights, you should have a conversation with your lender to make sure that you're able to do so and that it won't uh, disqualify you for any loan um, products that you're applying for. Yeah, okay. Uh, with this one, number seven, owner's association. This is a, this is a big one. And uh, obviously it doesn't apply to all properties, so I'll kind of let you explain that a little bit. But it's very common in metro settings obviously whether it's an hoa or a party wall agreement and kind of what is what does that actually entail and what are they getting into sure this is a this, the owners association documents is something that um, buyers aren't typically aware of it feels like until after they close and purchase on the house and that is not the way that this should normally be done what um an owners association documents refers to are um properties that have a, are that are subject to a planned unit development or an HOA or a party wall agreement. So examples of this would be Homes and Highlands Ranch. They have a, a master HOA that nearly, I think, every property in Highlands Ranch, whether it's detached or attached, is subject to. An HOA typically applies in condos. So if you're buying a unit within a condo, you're going to have those HOA documents. And then a party wall agreement typically applies when you're purchasing, say, a townhouse or a duplex or a triplex. And all of these base documents basically outline are the governing documents for the entity that controls uh, the rights and responsibilities for um, these associations. And it's really important to, number one, understand that if you're riding on one of these properties, that it's subject to an HOA. Uh, and you can talk to your broker about that, and they can give you some information on that and confirm whether or not it is subject to an HOA. And then the other most important piece is to get the association documents. And if you look in 7.3.5, it lists all of the HOA documents that you are entitled to read and review um, before you decide that you want to close on the property. And so the association documents that I think are really important for buyers to look out for are an association's operating budget, uh, the association's most recent annual financial statements, uh, the association's reserves in case something goes awry with the association, and then whether or not the association's been audited or the association's financials have been audited. All of these documents are basically trying to piece together the financial well-being of the association. And that is important because every HOA um, is typically uh, assesses um, association dues to all of the owners. And so there's regular assessments or dues, and then there's special assessments. And the last thing we want to see is a buyer being surprised by special assessments, you know, a year down the road when they yep. could have discovered that. So and I think a good example of that, because I've actually seen that before, um, with, it was actually a friend of mine, 
I know you probably think I'm talking about me, but it actually was, <laughs> um, to where somebody moved in a, a condo building and the elevators had to be replaced. And that was on the docket and wasn't disclosed. And I think it was around $15,000 per resident mm-hmm. to install new elevators, um, which obviously is a surprise, right? You get you do get a benefit. You're getting new elevator systems, but you know no one's thrilled about this unknown kind of expense that came up um, during that time. And I think another good one, too, as far as that I've seen with party walls, it's good to know, is actually read the party walls, right? Because I've seen people um, get into a townhome, maybe, or a a duplex and say, oh, I thought this was my yard, right? And the survey is attached with the party wall agreement. And lo and behold, you look at it, no, the other person owns it, or it's a uh, common element, right? Um, so they, they can't get complicated, obviously. Mm-hmm. Your broker should be able to give you, I think, a pretty high level of certainty with that. But obviously, if there are questions, that's your time. Again, back on Section 3 and the devil's in the details, right, to go through when you have your due diligence documents, right, to go through and fully understand what you're buying and what it all means. That's correct. And when it comes to the association documents, it's a tidal wave of documents. It's a lot of stuff to read through. So you want to make sure that you have the time built into the contract and your due diligence deadlines and your association documents deadlines to review all of those documents and to potentially engage outside legal counsel for help reviewing them just to make sure that you know exactly what you're buying and all of your rights and responsibilities associated with what you're buying. Um, the example of the elevator and the condo is a great example. If you say, you know, you, you purchased a condo for $300,000 and you're all excited about it. And then a month later, you're being, you're, uh, there's a special assessment issued on your property for $15,000. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money. And you want to make sure that you're prepared for that. And oftentimes, if you just glance at the association's meeting minutes while you're under contract, you'll see um, pending or incoming special assessments. And, and that can certainly affect the choice whether you want to move forward with the transaction or not. Correct. And one thing too, uh, Stephen, kind of what I, from what I know, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, a lot of these HOAs have managers um, and you can typically find out which company, because there's multiple of them right throughout Colorado, own um, the contract to manage that building and, and kind of call them up and ask some of these general questions. Hey, I'm looking to buy in whatever, the Apex condominiums, how is your HOA? You know, do you guys have any special assessments you you think coming up? Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, I think that you know, not that that's kind of the end all be all, but I think that's a great place to start um, to kind of understand what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a, a perfect example of you know getting into the documents, looking to see who the actual property manager is, and then just having a conversation with them about the property, the the financial well being of the property, and any pending assessments that are. Um, going to be subjected to the owners. Cool. All right. We could talk for days about that. We have <laughs> Airbnb restrictions on and on and on, but we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Okay. With that, we'll move on to section eight, title insurance, record title and off record title. This one obviously is complicated. We actually, uh, interviewed, uh, Kyle Kaufman with the exact title to kind of go into more detail of this. So we'll kind of just cover the, the overall, uh, spirit of this and kind of things to look out for for buyers? Sure. Well, the most important important thing for a buyer to understand about title insurance is that a title commitment and a title policy policy protects or attempts to protect the buyer's right to their to what they purchased, to the title. So it's, it's kind of like it is an insurance policy. 
Um, and it's important to understand what's located in that insurance policy. And so the first chance a buyer has to review that is a title commitment. And it outlines uh, you know, the legal description of the property, the purchase price, the loan amount. Those are all the things that we want to make sure you get right. But then also uh, it lists requirements for the title company to issue a title policy to the buyer. And then it also lists exceptions, things that the title company will not cover in the event of a, an, an issue or a dispute. Um, with the title policy. So it's important that a buyer understand what a title commitment and a title policy is, um, and then also to read it. And uh, frankly, I advise all buyers to reach out to legal counsel to understand what a title policy and a title commitment is um, and their rights and obligations associated with that, because it can get pretty technical and, and there's a lot of legalese in those documents. Right. Do you, I know obviously that goes for everyone, but from my experience, it's been even more important to kind of the more unique a property is or definitely you're like, you know, for example, you're an evergreen and you've got a large acreage and you have all kinds of potential easements mm-hmm. and access agreements and on and on and on. And those, those definitely, I think are a whole different animal versus kind of a, you know, buying a townhome or a condo, obviously important to understand, but um, yeah, they can definitely get, get pretty hairy. Yeah, I think that um, buyers who are purchasing brand new builds, brand new property or property that's exchanged hands several times over the last, you know, recent um, couple years, it's important, you know, there's more, there could be more issues with those title commitments. And then also like what you said, larger properties or properties located in the mountains or properties with strange boundaries um, or recently rezoned properties anything that's that's kind of upset the the property in the last couple of years is something to be on the lookout for. Okay. And then closely tied in with that, we kind of just hit on it a little bit, is um, new ILCs and surveys. So an ILC obviously is an improvement lot certificate, which is different than a survey. Um, and I get that question a lot, like, what is an ILC and a survey? And do I need one? And I mean, if I do, who's paying for this thing? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? So Sure. Well, the, the ILC and the survey has become more important, as you said, when we're dealing with uh, properties that aren't necessarily located in, metro, in the metro area that aren't just your standard lot and block property. Um, they're more important with new builds, um, newly zoned properties, larger properties, properties with boundary issues or easement issues. Um, but I would recommend, frankly, that uh, I recommend all, to all buyers to obtain a full survey on the property that they're buying because it, it really outlines what it is exactly that they're getting. It shows the boundaries of the property. It shows if there are any easements or you know any rights that exist out there to the property that, that other people can assert against the owner. And um, it's, it's a, I would say that you know, but the difference between a, a new improvement location certificate and a survey, I mean, it's like night and day. Uh, an improvement location certificate is um, not a legal document, and it's kind of like a snapshot of the property. It, it's really, it, it's used to put people on notice of potential issues, and of course, it's the cheaper of the two versions. Um, but the survey is really the, the legally binding document that gives you the property's legal address and shows you all of the recorded um, liens and easements against the property. So I think even a good example of this I run into a lot in the metro area is you get a uh, full pin survey, right, where the surveyors actually go out and they put pins literally in the alley and in the sidewalk or on the curb um, to show where the property line is. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've seen the neighbor's bushes are over it or fence mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. And obviously that's a whole different animal too, right? But it is important to know who actually owns the fence, who's, who is responsible for maintaining it. Or if a storm comes in and, and takes it down, do you have to replace it, right? These are, these are kind of things that, as you're saying, usually come to light after a closing, which is mm-hmm. not ideal for, for either party. Fences are an interesting uh, piece of this because a lot of times you just assume that the fence is on the boundary line of the property, but oftentimes it's not. Sometimes it's on your property and that yet the your neighbor takes care of the fence, but it's on your property. So who actually owns that fence? I mean, those are kind of the issues that pop up and why it's really helpful to have a survey to understand your rights and responsibilities associated with the property you're going to buy. Cool. No, that makes a lot of sense. And usually once we get to that level, that's usually when we uh, give Stephen a call and <laughs> and start going through the details because there, <laughs> there, again, are a lot of things that play into who actually owns the fence that we could have a whole podcast on. But we'll, uh, we'll keep moving on to 10.3, which is the inspection. And this is a big one. Uh, I'd say majority of deals that I see are kind of made or fall apart on the inspection. Um, so with it being that important, I'll kind of let you go into what, uh, what you see with this. Uh, yeah, if the contract that you sign has an inspection objection right, then the second you're under contract, I recommend that you hire a third-party inspector as soon as possible and schedule an inspection of the property and again, make sure that that, in, that scheduled inspection conforms with the dates and deadlines that have been set in the contract. Um, but it is incredibly important, as you said, and I think a lot of uh, transactions live and die by uh, the inspection and what the third party's inspector's report has. But the, how the process works is an inspector goes out and looks at the property, reviews the property, goes inside the actual structure, uh, and looks for any issues. And he develops a report and provides it to you and then typically you and your broker will go ahead and take a look at it and review and see if there are any red flags or any deal breakers for you there always are (laughs) i say they're kind of like lawyers like you can't send them a contract without some road lines that that is true they have to earn that fee (laughs) but no in all seriousness it is it is huge i mean usually even the inspectors will hire a third party who specialize in sewer inspections Mm -hmm. that's massive in denver um, there's all kinds of potential issues. I mean, some of these properties are 100, 150 years old, galvanized clay pipes. They've collapsed. Um, they're somewhat functioning, and it's a huge issue. The city can make you come in and fix them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many things we can go through, but uh, it, it really is kind of, I think, one of the most important things involved in this transaction. Right, and I think that it's just really important to constantly communicate with your broker, to make sure that the broker knows when the inspections are going to, when the inspection is going to occur, when the inspection report is due, uh, and if you think that that's going to conflict with your inspection objection rights, or your inspection termination rights, that you guys get a, an amend to the contract issued immediately to make sure that you always stay in conformity with the terms of the contract. And this is kind of outside the scope of the contract, but just kind of a little broker thing here. Whoever you're working with uh, should give you at least three different inspectors um, that you can kind of call and um, interview or read their Google reviews or whatever your vetting process is. Um, but you're definitely going to want to be comfortable with your inspector. Um, I Obviously, you need to schedule them yourself um, versus your broker. And really, I would highly, highly recommend being present for the inspection and really understanding, you know, 
there's things like a loose doorknob. Is that really something that's going to bother you? Maybe, maybe not, right? But we start getting into major things. It can it can definitely be a huge, huge issue with the property. Sure. And it's important to know that that inspector is your contact and your contract is with the inspector. It's not the broker's responsibility to make sure an inspection occurs. It's the buyer's responsibility. Cool. Yeah, that's why I wanted to hint on that because it kind of comes up, hey, should you schedule them? Should I? So that's kind of, mm-hmm. I just wanted to hit on that. Okay. Uh, 10.10 is kind of our next hot button here. Uh, lead-based paint. Uh, sure. So typically speaking, um, uh, there's a lead-based paint disclosure that's required for any property or any residential property in Colorado that's built before January 1st, 1978. And so if the property is built before January 1st, 1978, or even around 1978, it's important for the buyer uh, to understand if the paint that's, that was used when whenever the property existed, whether it contained lead or not. Uh, and that's a, a required disclosure by Colorado that a seller has to provide to the buyer. And so it's just important for the buyer to understand um, if lead ever existed at the property and to get comfortable with that if um, they want to move forward with the contract. Yep. And again, work with your uh, broker on that. If, uh, if there was lead-based paint, there's obviously several options. It can be remediated. Can, there's, there's a lot to know, but that's just important um, to understand that that section is just for you to know, hey, does it exist, does it not? And then you can kind of go over mm-hmm. uh, what your options are at that time with your broker. Sure. Uh, section 13 It's another big one, transfer of title. Yes. I see a lot more these days of special warranty deed versus general. Um, I feel like any person listing a property, their broker is going to encourage, or their lawyer is going to encourage them to probably go special warranty deed. And the seller, the buyer's uh, attorney is going to say, no, you got to have general. So kind of, I know that there's a lot of semantics here to go back and forth, but just kind of what's the difference and what do they mean? Well, you kind of stole my thunder there, but uh, <laughs> the special warranty deed is is what a seller would always want to convey to the buyer. Uh, and the special warranty deed essentially guarantees, the seller's guaranteeing title to the property from the date that the seller actually purchased the property and owned the property to the date that he conveys the property to the buyer. Whereas a general warranty deed, a seller is essentially guaranteeing um, title to the property from since essentially the dawn of time up until he conveys the property to the buyer. So obviously a buyer wants a general warranty deed, a seller wants a special warranty deed. Does it matter every time? Not necessarily. If you have a property that hasn't exchanged hands in 80 years, you know, then a special warranty deed is probably okay. If you have a property that's exchanged hands 20 times in the last two years, then I would probably insist that the buyer takes a general warranty deed because the deed is like the big kahuna. It's what we're doing here. That's your ownership interest and your rights to your property. And so you want to make sure you understand what you're being conveyed um, and you get comfortable with that before it's time to close on the transaction. So we've got three others that are listed in a kind of blank box um, I don't know how far you want to go into that, but I would, I'm, I'm going to kind of guess that you're going to say if it's not one of those two, then it's kind of ask questions, seek some advice. Definitely. The other main three in Colorado are the bargain and sale deed, a quick claim deed, and a personal representative's deed. I think of the three, the one that most buyers see more often than not is a personal representative's deed, and that's when an owner 
um, passes away and the, the owner's personal representative is the one that's actually conveying the property to the new buyer. Um, the bargain and sale deed and a quit claim deed, the, if that issue arises or if, if that's the deed that's going to be conveyed, I would highly recommend that they speak to legal counsel and, and discuss those deeds because they're um, kind of above and beyond what we're talking about here. Yeah, no, those are definite, uh, I don't want to call it a red flag, but that's definite wave in help yeah, immediately for sure. And they're okay, but it just depends. Every transaction is different, right? So it just depends on the terms of the transaction. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, with that, we'll go on to closing costs. Section 15. Um, this one's always confusing because there's a lot of boxes. <laughs> and uh, A lot uh, of bold words. Yeah, a lot of bold words. This is, this is, uh, this is scary uh, stuff here. So I'll kind of let you just go through what... Uh, what the spirit of this is. I think what's important here is that every box has to be checked um, because every box correlates to a fee that's going to be paid by either the buyer or the seller, or it's not going to apply. Um, so take, for instance... Let's correct see. me if I'm wrong, Stephen. This, obviously the entire contract does, but specifics like this, right? Tell the title company that you're working with who's handling the closing of the transaction who to charge who for what, right? Exactly. So that's why this is important because if the box is checked buyer, let's say, that literally means the buyer is paying for the entire thing. Right. In that section, whatever it may be. Exactly. Okay. And so like take your example with the closing services fee, if it's checked buyer, then the buyer is going to be on the hook for the closing services fee. Well, if I were a buyer, I would ask, well, what is a closing services fee and how much is that going to cost? And what is customary um, in Colorado right now? Who is paying for what? And these are conversations that you should have with your broker um, because they can shed some light on the approximate costs and, and what is uh, usual customary practice and who pays for what. Well, and again, this kind of reminds me of earlier when you were talking about there are different ways to make an offer strong, right? It could be purchase price, but then it could be something like this where you say, hey, I, as a buyer, am willing to incur more of these costs to make my offer more attractive to a seller without necessarily drastically increasing the, the price of the property. Oh, sure. I, one example is the local uh, transfer tax, which that doesn't apply everywhere in Colorado, but in places like Breckenridge, uh, that can be 1% of the purchase price. And so somebody's going to have to pay that, whether it's the buyer, the seller, or they split the fee. Uh, so it's important to understand um, what fees apply to the purchase of the property and to make sure that you know what you're going to be paying for, what you're expecting the seller to pay for uh, when, it's, when it's time to close on the transaction. And uh, just for the people out there listening, especially this is one of your first times buying a property, um, you can request uh, from the title company you're working with an estimation of fees uh, for a section like this, right? So you you know, is it going to be, it's going to be very close to what the numbers come into to say, hey, what is that transfer tax? If it's, if it's applicable, mm -hmm. um, what is the closing fee? You know, is it a hundred? Is it a thousand? Right? right. And you can kind of narrow that down. And I think that'll help create um, not only a knowledge for you, but maybe a way that you want to, you know, craft your offer. Right. And I highly recommend that you go, you speak with your broker on every single line item in those fees and understand what you're getting yourself into with all of those fees. Okay. Uh, moving on, Stephen, another hot topic here, especially with the seller's market that we've been in, is Section 17. Um, because how many times have we seen this, right? Hey, I'm selling the, the house and maybe I'm, you know, building another home or I'm, 
need time to go make an offer on another home now that I know that mine is sold um, because it is competitive and having a, a contingency in, in your offer on another property is tough. So um, this one for sure, devil in the details, right? Sure. Well, Section 17 is all about possession of the property. And as you had alluded to, a lot of times there will be the closing date, say it's December 1st, but then a seller says, well, I don't have anywhere else to go, so I need to find a new place. So can you give me a 30-day lease back on the property? So we close on December 1st, but I get to live in the property for another month. And then on January 1st, I'll hand over the keys and give you possession of the house. And we see that pretty regularly in this environment. And frankly, I've seen it regularly throughout kind of the course of my career here. But it's important that um, if closing date and possession date aren't the same, uh, that the buyer and the seller agree to execute a post-close occupancy agreement, which is essentially a, a shortened lease that outlines the rights and the responsibilities of each party. Uh, you know, whether the seller is going to have to take a security deposit or have to pay rent or if they're going to be the ones responsible for the utilities. All of those questions are addressed in the post-closing occupancy agreement. And it's really important that um, the buyer and seller execute that post-close occupancy agreement either at the time of contracting or as soon as possible thereafter. Yep. Again, details, right? If there's any damage, who pays for it? Mm -hmm. On and on. So very common, but definitely important to nail all that stuff down. Uh, big bad word, section 23, mediation. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Ooh. Hopefully, you know, in these transactions, we avoid mediation, we avoid disputes, but uh, unfortunately, disputes happen between buyers and sellers. And so if a dispute arises within the contract, if um, a buyer alleges that the seller breached the terms of the contract or vice versa, um, what Section 23 means is that the parties must per first proceed in good faith uh, to mediation before they try and litigate the matter. And a mediator is, is um, essentially an entity that helps to try and resolve disputes and prevent litigation uh, and to hopefully keep costs down between the parties so that they can resolve the dispute and everybody can move forward. Yes, not, not something one of people uh, want to get involved with, but honestly, I think important to know, right? Hey, what's the worst thing that happens in this contract? What if I'm unable to fill the obligations or they are? That's kind of where this comes into play. And as Stephen said, everyone kind of agrees in good faith to, to play nice and mm -hmm. try to come up with a, a reasonable resolution. Right, because like I said earlier, what we're doing here is we're bringing a buyer and seller together that actually want to effectuate a transaction. And so both parties want the deal to be done. Um, but, you know, like I said, disputes happen. And this section hopefully tries to make sure that the dispute we'll play finalizes as easily as possible. That's what we all hope. So. <laughs> well, playing into that, we've got termination, right? Mm -hmm. um, this part is obviously important because when does a buyer have the right to terminate and how are they kind of feeling confident that hey, this didn't work out for me for whatever reason. I'd like to terminate and get my earnest money back. Sure. So the whole goal with this contract um, from a buyer's perspective is the buyer, the preservation of buyer's earnest money. And so if you see here the uh, right to terminate is a capitalized term. And so what that means is if a right to terminate exists, that means that the buyer can terminate the transaction and get their earnest money back. And typically speaking, so long as a buyer abides by all of the dates and deadlines addressed in Section 3, um, they'll be able to get their earnest money back. But there's all sorts of procedures um, that a buyer is required to follow. They have to uh, issue and sign a notice to terminate. 
uh, and send it over to the seller and the seller's broker um, by the date and deadline shown on the contract. So it's important to understand what your rights are and what your obligations are to, to ensure the preservation of your earnest money. Well, Stephen, we appreciate it. Uh, we tried to keep this obviously uh, somewhat brief, but hopefully very informative. Um, again, there's so many different situations that come up with real estate transactions. Uh, they really are kind of a leaving, uh, living, breathing thing. Then they are, everyone really is different. So Stephen, if somebody does have a question or they want to get a hold of you specifically, can you kind of share your contact information so they can get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, so I, my law firm is Atlas Law. And uh, people are welcome to email me at steve at atlaslaw5280.com. Is that S-T-V-E-N? S-T-E-V-E, Steve. There we go, <laughs> Steve. All right, cool. Well, with that said, we appreciate everyone's time. And Steve, thanks for coming in to help us uh, shed some light on this contract. No problem. Thanks for having me.